Coming up on episode 27 of Omnivore, anticipation and anxiety in the 2024 consumer outlook, reflecting on the challenge of net zero food production, and navigating opportunity in cell-cultured seafood. This is Omnivore, from the editors of Food Technology Magazine and the Institute of Food Technologists. This episode of Omnivore is brought to you by ITI Tropicals, the leading supplier in North America of tropical and exotic fruit juice concentrates and purees. Visit ITITropicals.com to request a free sample today. Happy New Year and welcome back to a fresh episode of Omnivore from IFT and Food Technology, where we continue to explore the intersection of business, science, and emerging technologies in the global food system. I'm your host, Bill McDowell. Life for most of us has changed a lot in the past couple of years, and that's brought practical changes in the ways that we as consumers make food and beverage decisions. Which changes are blips and which ones will stick? And how will ongoing economic stresses inform consumer decisions in 2024? Food Technologies' Mary Ellen Kuhn asked Circana food and beverage analyst Darren Seifer to weigh in with insights from Circana's in-depth point of sale and panel data. Thanks so much for joining the podcast today, Darren. Really appreciate being here. Nice to talk to you. You shared a lot of interesting numbers for Food Tech's 2024 Consumer Outlook feature, and I'd like to delve into some of those. So let's start with 86%. That's the share of U.S. consumers' meals that are currently being sourced from home, and believe that's up from 83% prior to the pandemic. So is eating at home more often going to be a long-term consumer behavior, and what does that mean for CPG companies and food service operators? It's really looking that way for a few reasons. First off, during the pandemic, many of us were working from home and many of us are still doing that. Uh, We estimate that offices, for example, are only about 50% as full as when they were compared to 2019. And so that just naturally puts people closer to their pantries and further away from quick service restaurants or even convenience stores in downtown areas. And so we, we we do think that this is going to continue for a bit, um, if not to the foreseeable future. It's been at that 86% level for the last couple of years now. And so there hasn't been really been signs of it budging back towards uh, the food service side just yet. And so, uh, you know, implications are around making sure that we have the products that are meeting consumer needs in home, but while they're at home, it doesn't necessarily mean that they they want to do more work. So lunchtime, for example, you know, this, we noted this during 2020 as well, just because people were at home with their lunches, it doesn't mean that they were going to spend more time making more elaborate lunches. They were still trying to find solutions that were quick, that helped them get through the day, you know, because they still had meetings and whatnot to get to and, and, and work to accomplish during the day. Well, that's a great analysis. So there's another interesting number that you mentioned that I wanted to talk about. And you pointed out that the cost of food has increased by 30% since 2019. So that's a really hefty number. Could you talk a little bit about the ramifications of that? There's definitely ramifications of that. Because when you think about it, the, the really the first things that people need to buy, there's things we need to buy and there's things that we could put off, but things that we need to buy and need to buy all the time 
our foods and beverages. We can maybe delay or, or push off going to a restaurant. Uh, sometimes we can't just because we're out and about. We don't have anything on us. So sometimes food service is still a necessity. But then when you think about some of the other things like general merchandise, so do we need to get that new mobile phone that just came out? We're still going to buy foods and beverages. There, there's, We're not going to delay eating, right, just because it prices got more expensive. But what we will do is we will find more ways to keep those foods and items that we buy all the time within a budget. So does that mean they will consumers will switch to different stores to find cheaper prices? Absolutely. Will they switch to things like private label or store brands to try and make it fit that budget? Absolutely. When those things get exhausted, that's when the consumers will start saying, hey, maybe I shouldn't go out to the restaurant as often. And I certainly maybe shouldn't be buying new electronics or things that are high ticket items as well. Well, of course, inflation is easing up a bit. Do you anticipate that making much of a difference? It, it certainly is easing. And, and when we look month by month and, and we look at the change in food and beverage retail prices, they have started to get into, they're pretty much flat now. So maybe up 0.2%. That, that's how flat they are. Again, as we just said, prices are still 30% higher. And so it, it's great that the increases have slowed to almost nothing, but we're still paying a lot more out of our wallets. And wages did not go up by 30% over the last few years. And so consumers are still grappling with how do they make all those choices and fit them in their budgets. Well, that's for sure. Well, Sirkana recently released its Eating Patterns in America report. And I think you're pretty close to that. And one of the macro trends or themes that you identified is the three R's for wellness, and that's relax, re-energize, and find relief. So I'm thinking that the pursuit of relaxation and relief might have something to do with the tumultuous world we're all living in right now. Is that what's driving it? You know, yeah. And it didn't start with this year. The pandemic brought on a whole level of stress that consumers never even experienced in their lifetime, at least in the last 100 years. Maybe people over 100 years old maybe experienced it last time around, but it's something that we hadn't experienced at all. And at the beginning of the pandemic, we were seeing consumers gravitate towards these affordable indulgences like sweets and candies and ice cream, just to give you that brief mental escape. And some of that really came through as we kind of came out on the tail end of this pandemic. We're still seeing consumers gravitate towards snacks and some indulgences, sweet snacks, for example. Uh, we're still consuming them in higher numbers today than we were just a few years ago. We're, so we haven't abandoned those little escapes that we that we like all the time. So we are definitely looking for things like like stress relief. Um, at the same time, if we don't get a good night of sleep, then we need to find ways to power through the day. And so that re-energizing has gotten very important with consumers. We've seen not only sales of energy drinks increase, but we've also seen the usage of them increase at the same time. And so what might help also consumers not need to re-energize throughout the day is, is finding relaxation and so things that will help calm them down. And we've seen substances like hemp and CBD increase uh, since the, since the pre-pandemic period. So just, just a lot of ways that consumers are trying to find this, this, these three R's. And we even noted that the fastest selling new products of 2022 when they came out 
were really centered around energy drinks, around uh, hard seltzers, and you could see the three R's in those top new top new selling items as well. I mean, certainly when you think about hard seltzers, it is about finding some relief in some ways. If maybe you're just having a drink at the end of the day, or if you're just gathering with friends, you're you're finding just relief and and, and relaxing with them. Um, and also energy drinks were, were on the top list as well. So it, it, I, I see those drinks doing so well because they are focused against those three R's. Well, I was going to ask you about beverages, which you were alluding to several of them right now. And I think that's another another theme that you identified for 2024. So what else are consumers looking for in their liquid refreshment? You know, it, it, it's more about what are these beverages doing for the consumers? It's not just about hydration, which is obviously important. You know, if it was all just about hydration, water would, would just be <laughs> the big thing right now. Um, and, and while bottled water actually was the fastest growing beverage over the last few years, it, it's plateaued. And, and again, it's been more about functional beverages. So again, are you providing me with energy? Are you giving me a new flavor that maybe I'm not used to having or, or is brand new, or, or is there just other kind of just health benefit that consumers can get out of these items? So it's it's beyond just taste. It's taste and what does this also do for me? Got it. Um, are there any other categories that are presenting significant opportunities right now for CPG companies? What we've been seeing in home at least is a rise in heat and eat products. And it's it's connecting with those consumers who are commuting once again, who are all of a sudden finding that they don't have the time to make a breakfast or a dinner that like they were in 2020 because they weren't commuting. Well, commuting is starting to take time out of people's time budgets to make these meals. And, and really across the day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we've been seeing the rise of heat and eat solutions. And so it, it, if if CPG manufacturers could either point out or innovate into those spaces for right now, that's a growing consumer need. Are those heat need options mostly refrigerated? Not necessarily. No, they could either be refrigerated, they could be shelf stable, you know, think like a Pop-Tart or something like that, or uh, even frozen solutions at the same time. So it, it, the form... It, I'm not so sure that the form is really what the consumer is thinking. It's so more. It's it's more about is this not going to crumble in my lap when I chew on it? Is it very portable? Those are the things that consumers are really concerned with right now. Well, before we go, I really want to talk about air fryers because mm -hmm. you shared a number that I found just amazing. So in 2020, 37% of homes had an air fryer, but by 2023, it was 63%. So we just got one and I haven't even tried it yet. And I'm feeling kind of behind the curve, I guess. So <laughs> let's talk a little bit about uh, air fryers and the opportunities they present for, for food companies. Yeah. You know, yeah, the interesting thing about these is that they were a big hit over the last few years. This year, sales have actually slowed on air fryers. Year to date, it, they're down by about 14% in unit sales, but their usage is increasing throughout the day for consumers. And, and it's partly because of what you just said. It's in so many more homes now. And CPG manufacturers manufacturers have gotten wise and have put air fryer instructions on many of their packages as well. And so it's not just about, oh, I've got my stovetop, my microwave. 
It's now the air fryer has been a, a, a com- key component to heating up consumers' foods. And so I think this also goes into what we were talking about with heat and eat solutions at the same time, that as there's been this growing need for heat and eat solutions, the air fryer has just been sitting there waiting for consumers to just to just use it. Well, thanks. Uh, this is inspiration to check it out and, and try it. Darren, thanks so much for joining our podcast. We really appreciate it. Anytime. This was great. Talk to you soon. Sounds good. Darren Seifer analyzes food industry and consumer trends at advisory firm Circana. Learn more about what he and a dozen other industry watchers see on the horizon for consumers in the year ahead in the December-January issue of Food Technology. We'll be back with more Omnivore in a moment. But first this word from our sponsor. Add Tropical Flair to your product line today. ITA Tropicals is the leading supplier of tropical and exotic fruit juice concentrates and purees in North America. With products like passion fruit, guava, acerola, coconut water, and more, the possibilities with ITI Tropicals are endless. To view the full line of fruit purees, juices, and juice concentrates, or to request a free sample, visit ITITropicals.com today. Welcome back to Omnivore. I'm Bill McDowell. Last year, Food Technology published a four-part series that explored innovations and challenges to the food industry's efforts to reach net-zero carbon emissions by 2050. The series investigated efforts in agriculture, including regenerative practices and the application of CRISPR technologies, then delved into the cultured meat debate before concluding with a look at the impact artificial intelligence might have on food production emissions. Food Technologies Deputy Managing Editor Kelly Hensel sat down with veteran journalists and authors of the articles Dale Buss and Kate Sukel to reflect on some insights they gained while working on the series. Thank you, Dale and Kate, for joining me to talk about the Net Zero article series today. And as I was rereading the articles in the series, you know, two things became very apparent to me, and they were technology and time. And obviously, there's really cool technologies that you guys both covered in the articles that we need to, you know, implement in order to mitigate the negative environmental impacts of food production. But obviously, there's this race against the clock. And I kind of wanted to just hear from both of you about your thoughts on that. And also, after all of your research and your interviews, do you feel like we have the ability to implement these technologies quickly enough to make a difference? So, Dale, why don't you get us started? I guess in pondering that question, you know, a big question in response really is, can anything make enough of a difference? I, I think the course of what happens to the climate is the most important determinant. I think it's important for the food industry in all the ways that we documented in this series to you know, try to fight back against that. But it's just not clear if even the best efforts of the industry are going to make enough of a difference. The thing is, you got to keep doing it, you know, regardless of, of not knowing the outcome. I, I do think we have to separate, though, between, you know, things that clearly are going to make a big difference. And we'll talk more in a bit, I know, about regenerative agriculture like that versus some things that I would just say are greenwashing. Kate, what do you think? It's certainly a race uh, against the clock. 
And the scientists that are working on these problems, they sense the urgency and they are definitely trying to move things forward as quickly and as safely as they can. Um, but I think, especially when we're talking about agriculture, you know, and, and gene editing, it takes a season to figure out how those edits play out, what kind of crops actually grow, how they interact with the ecosystem. And in fact, it takes more than a season to really understand potential second and third order effects. Um, unfortunately, we don't have... Uh, a real specific clock on on how long it's going to take us to get too far but i would say that the you know the scientists they definitely sense this urgency and they're trying to work as fast as possible we kind of talked on uh, a little bit on the agriculture side of things um dale i know your your articles focused in to begin with on regen ag and then you moved on you kind of talked about cultured meat and then this last article obviously deals with artificial intelligence and I wanted to get a sense from you, having written three of the articles, what do you think has the biggest potential to make an impact on reducing carbon emissions in the food chain? I definitely think it's regenerative agriculture and all the practices that, that you know, farms and farmers can apply to uh, nourishing and preserving the soil, you know, cutting um, even methane emissions by cows, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and included in that would be AI and what that could contribute to that whole process. Now, Kate, you your article that you wrote delved, it talked about agriculture as well, but more on the aspect of using CRISPR to cultivate crops and also obviously optimize livestock to better withstand the impacts of changing climate, like disease and heat and drought, et cetera. Um, but could you share with us an example of how this technology is being used that you found especially promising? You know, I think some of these things like the drought resistance, um, the heat resistance, I, I think this is almost the scientists saying, well, may maybe, you know, the climate is changing and there's no turning back in certain aspects. And so it's almost planning for the environment that is to come. Um, I think that there are several really interesting and promising um, projects out there. Um, you know, with CRISPR, researchers are looking at editing genes that can enhance photosynthesis um, to take more carbon dioxide out of the air. They are looking at how to create plants that are not only disease resistant, but have more dense root systems that can also sort of, you know, capture more carbon um, and really sort of offset what humans are doing. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I found really interesting was trying to develop self-fertilizing seeds. And in doing so, you know, they can take away a lot of the fertilizer, you know, getting the fertilizer places um, and really help the plants, you know, grow themselves. So I, I really think that in terms, especially in terms of CRISPR, there's really no stone being unturned. They're looking at all kinds, you know, even uh, changing the microbiome of cattle to try to reduce methane emissions. Um, and, and, you know, some of these projects will stick. It's just a matter of giving them enough time to figure out which ones will really make a difference. Yeah, I mean, it is promising, but like you said, uh, you know, it kind of does go back to time. And aside from time, uh, there's many other challenges. And I just love to get an idea from both of you what you see those major challenges to be. Dale, do you want to start? Yeah, I think obviously cost, the cost of such a huge 
paradigm shift in the business, all the technology involved in the change, all the investment required to get what are going to be you know, kind of by definition incremental gains all along the way is a huge obstacle. And, you know, at some point it's going to be something that people in the industry, maybe consumers are going to say, you know, is it worth all of it? Kate, do you have any ideas on this one? I think one of the biggest issues is public acceptance. If you think about how many people were against GMOs, you know, I don't know that everybody outside of the laboratory understands the difference between a genetically engineered food using CRISPR versus some of the GMOs of old. And so for them to be able to reach into their pocketbooks to buy these products to support this kind of science is really going to require a lot of education, a lot of, you know, sort of public awareness campaigns. You know, this kind of goes into the the question that we just talked about, but what do you guys see that needs to change and or accelerate in order to get us to the goal which is a very lofty goal, we all know this, of reducing emissions from food production by 45% by 2030, and then obviously reaching net zero by 2050. What is one or two things that absolutely have to happen? Kate, do you want to start us out this time? I think really it starts with thinking outside the box. And while we have, you know, places like the Innovative Genomics Institute that is really spearheading a lot of this CRISPR work, um, you know, there is a lot of resistance in terms of, you know, this isn't how we do things. This isn't how the industry is set up. This isn't how, you know, we make changes. And and for such a big industry, um, radical change is really hard. You know, it's hard to, to turn the... Uh, aircraft carrier around. Um, and so I think, you know, more investment from these bigger companies, uh, more, um, again, that public acceptance piece and understanding what these different technologies can offer. Um, and then really sort of the the room and the investment to, to test them and make sure that they're safe and effective. I think ironically, maybe what we need maybe not what we need, but what might actually make a difference is if the weather slash climate gets worse even more quickly than anticipated. Maybe we need more than a wake-up call to just simply create momentum, you know, overcome inertia, get more resources, more political will, and economic uh, in investment behind these efforts. Um, unfortunately, that that might make more difference than anything else. Yeah, that's a unfortunate truth. I just wanted to thank you both for taking the time to talk to me today, but also to the great reporting that you did in the whole series. It's hopefully been educational for our readers, and I am looking forward to doing another series <laughs> in the future with you guys. So thank you so much. Dale Buss is a business journalist and food technology contributing editor. Kate Sukel is a book author, magazine writer, and public speaker who frequently covers scientific topics. The final article in our four-part series, along with links to the previous three articles, appears in the current issue of Food Technology. Over
Over his 40-year career, Lou Cooperhouse has ridden a tidal wave of firsts in food innovation. At Campbell's Soup back in the early 80s, he helped pioneer one of the first complete lines of refrigerated prepared foods sold at retail. He later co-founded the Rutgers University Food Innovation Center, which was a first-of-its-kind incubator for food entrepreneurs. But for all of these firsts, Cooperhouse has Blue Nalu, the startup cell-cultured seafood company he created nearly six years ago, might just top them all. Using precision fermentation technologies, Cooperhouse hopes Blue Nalu can replace today's highly variable and environmentally taxing seafood supply chain with one that will be vertically integrated, consistent, and delicious. Food Technologies' Julie Larson Brisher recently caught up with Cooperhouse to find out more about cell-cultured seafood and the revolutionary sea change he envisions for the segment. Hi, Lou. It's great to talk with you again today to get your take on innovation and specifically cell-cultured seafood. Thanks, Julie. Let's dive right in then. What led you to found and take the helm at Blue Nalu? First, it's a great honor to be on this podcast with you. And uh, what led me to found you know, Blue Nalu was really kind of based on 40 years of food innovation, really continually being involved in taking exciting new products to consumers based on technology, but based really on a product market fit. And through all, through that entire career, working on so many different technologies, so many different market applications, I really learned about, like the rest of the world uh, in 2013, that something that I saw as totally transformative was first shown as a proof of concept. It was to make a real animal product without the animal. And I literally described that as the holy grail of all technologies. But I also saw that as something that was first shown a proof of concept based on the science, but not, in my opinion, based on the market opportunity. And kind of my whole career in, in food innovation is all about the intersection of those two core elements. What is the fundamental technology that creates a superior product opportunity? But what is the product market fit in which that technology can best be realized? And I said to myself, the, con the, the whole concept of cell-cultured protein when applied to seafood is extraordinarily transformative because we're solving some foundational problems with our seafood supply chain. Um, recognizing that there's health issues with mercury, plastics, toxin, pollutants, there's consistency issues, there's vulnerability and variability issues with a global supply chain. There's a fundamental gap in supply we have farmed out the ocean over the last four decades. You know, it's the last hunted animal. It's so inconsistent, so variable, so vulnerable, so subject to the issues and effects of climate change and so inconsistent and increasingly challenged with health issues. So again, I found a Blunalu really based on the observation that if one could actually accomplish shell culture seafood, uh, it could be extremely transformative and really create a healthier, humane, and sustainable product for the planet. You know, one thing, I cannot believe I failed to ask you this previously, but where did the name Blue Nalu come from? So, so uh, great question. So I was actually doing a fair amount of consulting work in the beautiful state of Hawaii and uh, really helping in my in my life, uh, I spent 15 years at Rutgers running the Rutgers Food Innovation Center, uh, something I co-founded back in right around 2000. 
And that was kind of the lens in which I really saw so many innovations really happening in front of my eyes. And I, I had the good fortune to really work around the world, creating other ecosystems to support entrepreneurship. And what a wonderful place to work was in Hawaii. So I was literally speaking at a, uh, a statewide conference back in 2017 with the whole objective to really encourage entrepreneurship, thinking big and out of the box among the entrepreneurial audience. And I was asked to really talk about what gets me excited. And I was literally saying something to the effect of here we are in the middle of the most beautiful state, arguably in, 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 our, in our nation, but also in the most beautiful place in the world surrounded by the Pacific Ocean. But unfortunately, it is so challenged. Here's where uh, somewhere between 70, 80 plus percent of our seafood supply chain comes from. And this is really the, the, the central point of arguably a global problem. So I was literally addressing the audience talking about cell culture seafood. So for those who aren't aware, Nalu is a Hawaiian word for wave. So it's really, uh, it's, it's homage to the state of Hawaii where, this, where the company was really first founded, where I first talked about it publicly. And um, Nalu also is a bit of slang in, in Hawaiian. When you say to somebody Nalu it, it's a bit of a, a surfing term. It's about being thoughtful, mindful. It's really about, uh, hey, be careful when you're out there surfing. And it does obviously, you know, pull from the wave of the ocean, the Moana. So again, Blumalu is really uh, a name that really represents what we're all about, the Pacific Ocean, and really um, a more thoughtful, mindful solution to feeding the planet. Wow. You know, I can hear always when you talk about Blumalu, the excitement in your voice. And um, so I want to ask you to talk a little bit about what about the company and its mission really is causing that excited uh voice as a scientist and as a consumer. Yeah. And, and uh, thank you for that. And, and, and even as frankly, just even as a human, it's really, you know, I think we're, we're so fortunate in the food industry to have an opportunity to really make uh, food products that are not just healthy for ourselves, but for future generations. So what excites me is really the opportunity to really create a brand new supply chain source. It is such a delicious and healthy source of protein that is seafood, you know, increasingly compromised in, in our control, but also outside of our control due to all kinds of effects that some we can and some we cannot really, you know, really manage. Um, so the opportunity here is to make a brand new sustainable source of a very beloved biblical protein being seafood, um, one that we want to make sure is available for future generations. And what excites me about it is really a product that I believe is superior to its conventional counterpart. And we've actually validated that with, with some of the research we've done. Consumers who love seafood are very motivated to have Lunalu seafood because they love seafood for its health benefits, but they're even more motivated to enjoy Lunalu seafood because it's absent of mercury, plastics, pollutants, and things that they are in fact concerned about. And the food service industry has told us the same thing. They just can't get access to something as beloved as bluefin tuna toro, which is our first product we're commercializing. And when they do get it, it's highly variable, inconsistent, you know, maybe all sorts of uh, color or marbling uh, or flavor or texture. With our product, it's consistent every time. So we're creating a trusted supply source and access for something that today 
is not accessible at all. So we really are creating a superior solution at both important levels, the consumer and the food service operator. Well, you know, we've talked in the past about the emotional connectivity uh, with regard to consumers and acceptance of tech-enabled food, if you will. Will you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think maybe going back in my own career, you know, it's interesting about, you know, in my early days, uh, I've worked at Campbell's and ConAgra and Nestle and numerous startups along the way. And in my early career, it was really about convenience, uh, health, nutrition, you know, really providing, you know, a benefit to a consumer that is arguably a bit incremental, you know, and what's really happened in the last, you know, decade to two decades is food has become very, if you will, emotional. Um, food is not just about sustenance. It's about really how you connect with your peers, with your family, with your friends. It's become a bit social and experiential. So whether you enjoying, you know, a bit of a premium coffee at your favorite establishment uh, or, or how you share meals with your friends or the kind of foods you partake in, it's a bit more about you and your uh, political, social, you know, spiritual kind of connectivity. And what I've really found about the food industry, too, uh, is I like to use the word oxymoron foods. Giving, giving consumers something that they thought was not even possible. You know, earlier in my life, I worked on, you know, the first generation, if you will, of gluten-free lasagnas and mac and cheese, you know, things that really connect with the consumer because they said they, for people with celiac disease, to have something that's as complex as that, you know, you know really it creates that, you know, that kind of emotional connection. And just like what we're doing with Bluefin Tuna, you know, making an accessible, consistent, healthy, sustainable, safe product for consumers is, again, something that people may not think about too much, but is, in fact, a bit of an oxymoron today. So it's really that, that connection with consumers that makes them feel good. The foods that we're excited to bring to the market after you've had it, we actually want to look at their face. They feel good. They want to talk to their friends about it. So it's not just sustenance. It's really something that they want to share and they really have uh, that emotional connection to the company and the brand. And that's really what's quite powerful with, with creating that kind of equity that we're looking for. Well, thanks so much, Lou, for taking the time to talk with us today on Omnivore. I'm, I'm really looking forward to tasting that blue fin Toro someday. Look forward to having you, Julie. Definitely. Lou Cooperhouse is founder, president, and CEO of Blue Nalu, based in San Diego, California. You can learn more about his vision to produce a sea change in the seafood category in the December-January issue of Food Technology. Thank you to ITI Tropicals, the sponsor of this episode of Omnivore. ITI Tropicals is the leading supplier of tropical and exotic fruit juice concentrates and purees in North America. Visit ITITropicals.com to view their full line of fruit purees, juices, and juice concentrates, or to request a free sample today. That's ITITropicals.com. And that wraps up this episode of Omnivore. Thanks again to all our guests and my colleagues at Food Technology. Omnivore is produced and distributed by the Institute of Food Technologists. If you enjoyed today's show and want to learn more about Food Technology Magazine, 
or how to join the conversation by becoming an IFT member, visit ift.org membership. For more in-depth discussion about innovation in the science of food, check out IFT's other podcast, SciDish, on the news and publications page of ift.org. If you have comments or suggestions for future shows, just send us an email. The address is editors at ift.org. For the entire team at Food Technology and IFT, I'm Bill McDowell. Thanks for listening, and join us again for our next episode. This is Omnivore.